Just a quick update before we begin. Thanks to Audible, History of the Marine Corps can now give you a free audiobook. Audible is known for its tens of thousands of selections, and I use Audible for myself for some of the reference material we use on the show. I love audiobooks. For one, I'm a crayon eater, so having someone read the book to me is a lot easier. But it also allows me to rewind and listen to segments, and I can listen while I'm doing things around the house. In the spirit of transparency, History of the Marine Corps receives a kickback for everyone who signs up, but the author or the publisher does not sponsor me. Every recommendation is a book I have personally read or listened to and enjoyed. I'll include my suggestion at the end of the episode, but don't feel obligated to select my recommendation. This offer is available to any of the tens of thousands of audiobooks offered by Audible. And whether you decide to continue your membership, this book is yours to keep. Forever. Visit audibletrial.com slash marine history for a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial. Now on to the show. Welcome to episode 72 of History of the Marine Corps, The Banana Wars, Part 1. We discussed the Spanish-American War during our last episode. The short four-month war had some important milestones, and we took a look at a couple of battles, some Marine Corps changes, and set the stage for events that resulted from a more aggressive U.S. foreign policy. This episode introduces new U.S. doctrine. From the end of the Spanish-American War until World War I, the United States foreign policy became more aggressive, and as a result, the Marines were sent to Latin America, the Caribbean, China, and the Philippines. This was an important time for the Marine Corps, because Marines predominantly conducted military interventions in multiple areas of operation. There's a lot of history to cover, good and bad, which we will explore as we move through this period of time. I'm breaking this up into a few categories. We'll first cover the Banana Wars, a series of conflicts that took place in Latin America and the Caribbean, move on to the Philippines, and end with China. These conflicts aren't without controversy. But this isn't a podcast about the morality of the United States, and I'll try my best to provide both sides of the story. Thanks for joining. Now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. As we discussed in previous episodes, the Marine Corps' strength grew significantly during the Spanish-American War, and it would continue to grow in the years after. Due to the steady growth and the success of Marines in previous conflicts, the United States had more confidence in the Corps, and Marines traveled throughout the globe. From the end of the Spanish-American War to World War I, the U.S. Navy and Marine Corps fought in conflicts in the Philippines, China, and South America. In North America, the United States were fighting in the Native American Wars and the Mexican Revolution. These two conflicts were fought mainly by the U.S. Army, but Marines did play a role in a few battles, which we'll briefly touch on. All of these conflicts happened around the same time, so we'll be jumping around a lot leading up to World War I. The next few episodes will focus on the Americas. From 1898 to 1934, 
the United States frequently sent military forces to conflicts in Central America and the Caribbean. These conflicts were known as the Banana Wars and were an important time for the Marine Corps. Marines were the ones who predominantly conducted military interventions, and they became so involved that they created a document on tactics and strategies for fighting against small military and guerrilla forces. This document is called the Small Wars Manual, and I'll provide a copy of it on the website. Marines who are listening will recognize names such as John A. Lejeune and Smedley Butler, two Marines who had a profound impact on the Marine Corps. And by the way, the correct pronunciation of his name is Lejeune, not Lejeune. This is according to Lejeune's pronunciation of his own name, and this is how the family requests the name to be pronounced. I've called it Lejeune for years, and saying Lejeune sounds a little weird, but I'll, I'll try to make that change. I might slip up a few times during this episode, but it's pronounced Lejeune. This was a Marine War. Like most conflicts, the Banana Wars weren't without controversy. There were horrendous acts conducted by Marines, damaging consequences due to American policies, the United States using their military to push through unpopular treaties and constitutions, and strong accusations that the U.S. plundered nations during the Banana Wars on behalf of corporations. Smedley Butler was a strong voice in denouncing these corporations. In his speech, which is also a book, War is a Racket, Butler states, quote, I spent 33 years and four months in active military service, and during that period, I spent most of my time as a high-class muscle man for big business, Wall Street and the bankers. In short, I was a racketeer, a gangster for capitalism. I helped make Mexico, and especially Tampico, safe for American oil interest in 1914. I helped make Haiti and Cuba a decent place for the National City Bank boys to collect revenues in. I helped in the raping of half a dozen Central American republics for the benefit of Wall Street. I helped purify Nicaragua for the International Banking House of Brown Brothers in 1902 to 1912. I brought light to the Dominican Republic for the American sugar interest in 1916. I helped make Honduras right for the American fruit companies in 1903. In China, in 1927, I helped see to it that Standard Oil went on its way unmolested. Looking back on it, I might have given Al Capone a few hints. The best he could do was operate his racket in three districts. I operated on three continents. Unquote. Although Marines primarily organized and fought during these occupations, the events leading up to the Banana Wars took place when Marines were still fighting from top masts on Navy ships. During the 1800s, Europe had colonized most of Latin America. This time was concerning for a newish, bustling country like the United States. In the 1820s, the U.S. had already fought and won wars against a few European countries. Naturally, U.S. foreign policy began to see European colonization in North and South America as a threat to the United States. So to defend against this threat, the Monroe Doctrine, written by John Quincy Adams, was issued by President James Monroe on December 2, 1823. The policy opposed European colonialism in North and South America. The doctrine claimed that any involvement in the politics of nations in the Americas 
was a hostile act against the United States. This doctrine also increased the trade with these independent nations. When the Monroe Doctrine was first issued, European and Latin Americans welcomed it with mixed reactions. Internationally, no one really cared that the U.S. issued a doctrine against European colonization. In 1820, the U.S. didn't have a strong military, specifically a navy. Latin American countries were more supportive of the doctrine. They appreciated the support from the United States, but they also understood the U.S. was weak at the time. And without the support from European allies, they could do little to stop a foreign nation from claiming a new colony in Latin America. Both European and Latin American nations were correct with their theory of the U.S. lacking the firepower to stop European nations. For the first 20 years, the U.S. didn't enforce the doctrine too closely. For example, in 1833, the British reasserted their sovereignty over the Falkland Islands. The U.S. took no action against the British. Between 1838 and 1850, Argentina was blockaded by both the French and the British. Again, the U.S. did nothing. But as the United States grew in strength and continued to prove themselves in battle, enforcing the Monroe Doctrine became more of a priority. President John Tyler applied the doctrine to Hawaii and warned Britain to leave the islands alone. This warning was the start of Hawaii becoming a U.S. state. By the end of 1845, President Polk revisited the doctrine and enforced it as the U.S. expanded west. When 1898 came around, Cuba was in a revolution against Spain. This time the U.S. would intervene, and the result ended up as the Spanish-American War. After the short war, the U.S. increased interest in multiple new locations worldwide, the Caribbean and South America being the closest. This new interest, coupled with the Monroe Doctrine, led to the United States using military and political intervention in several smaller countries. As U.S. foreign policy spread, new missions were created for the Marine Corps. Marines found themselves in multiple military interventions in the Caribbean and South America. This period is an important milestone in Marine Corps history. The use of the Marine Corps for foreign policy allowed the U.S. to deploy the small military branch in a way that traditional military hadn't been used before. By the time World War I would come around, the Marine Corps went through so many developments, it was an entirely new organization. During Episode 70, The Gilded Age, Part 2, we discussed U.S. involvement in Panama. In the years following the timeline, revolutions and riots overwhelmed the area. The United States wouldn't intervene with any issues in Panama until after the Spanish-American War. On June 28, 1902, the Spooner Act, written by U.S. Senator John Coit Spooner, was enacted by President Roosevelt, and it authorized the purchase of the Panama Canal. Committing to the construction of the canal sparked a new interest in the area, and U.S. forces started to get involved. The Navy conducted a landing force operation when one of the rebel groups cut the telegraph wires for the railway and threatened employees. Local railroad officials refused to operate the train without American protection. So a detachment of 12 officers and 233 enlisted, including a detachment of Marines from the USS Iowa, landed in Panama. 
the U.S. forces met little resistance and managed to reopen the train service under their guard. The two opposing factions would periodically fight along the railroad, but the United States arranged a ceasefire while trains were in the area and allowed them to pass before they continued to duke it out. For a few days, this arrangement continued until Captain Perry of the USS Iowa established a peace treaty between the two factions. On November 28th, Perry called Colombian General Alban and rebel faction leader De La Rosa to a conference. De La Rosa surrendered, and the United States temporarily controlled Cologne until Colombian forces could take over. But although peace was established between Colombian forces and the rebel faction, the Colombian liberal forces did not agree with the arrangement made by the treaty. Liberal forces organized an army and two naval vessels, and they made a formal announcement that they planned to take the town. A force of 500 to 600 liberal forces threatened to take control of Boca del Toro, which was the shipping port used by the United Fruit Company. The company complained to U.S. authorities, and in response, the U.S. dispatched the gunboat Machias to the area, commanded by Henry McRae. When he arrived, he found the liberals advancing towards the town. McRae informed the incoming force that he wouldn't allow artillery and sent a small landing party to defend the U.S. consulate. This show of force did not stop the liberals from attacking, and not too long after the attack, McRae realized that the small force he sent to shore would not be able to defend against the attackers. So McRae called a meeting between all fighting forces, and he arranged a ceasefire. As soon as the two belligerents agreed to the ceasefire, two ships carrying 1,000 Colombian forces arrived. They had intentions of taking the city, but per the agreement, liberal forces were allowed to leave the area and take their weapons and equipment with them. U.S. Marines and sailors were left to protect the town. Unfortunately, the treaty organized by McRae did little, and the conflict slowly moved towards Panama City. By the time the U.S. authorized the purchase of the property, Colombian and liberal forces grew significantly. The battle zone was shifting too, and it soon found itself about 50 miles from Panama City. Liberal forces continued to be a threat, and on August 30th, they had 2,000 Colombian troops surrender to them. With this substantial number of Colombian forces out of the equation, liberal forces boarded their naval fleet and headed for Panama. In response, the Department of the Navy quickly dispatched more naval vessels to both sides of the isthmus. They also ordered a battalion of Marines to land in Panama. Commanded by Lieutenant Colonel Benjamin R. Russell, the battalion consisted of 17 officers and 325 enlisted. They sailed from New York and arrived in Cologne on September 22nd. When the Marines arrived, they arrived with purpose. Immediately after pulling into their destination, a company of Marines was sent to Cologne and the rest headed towards Panama. Lieutenant Colonel Russell ordered Marines to escort all trains and dispatch smaller units to guard important railroad properties. Marines on railway duty faced a few close calls, but it was nothing that they couldn't handle. They quickly controlled the situation and established order. A second battalion was organized at Norfolk, 
However, the 1st Battalion had the situation completely under control. Their ability to control the situation without firing a single round resulted in the 2nd Battalion of Marines standing down and never being sent to Panama. Peacemaking efforts between Colombian and liberal forces finally started to head in the right direction, and by November, liberal forces gave up their arms and in return were given freedom. Colombian troops took over the responsibility of protecting the railroad, and the Battalion of Marines withdrew from Panama on November 17th. In early 1903, the United States and Colombia signed the Hay-Heron Treaty. The treaty outlined the initial pay and ongoing rent the U.S. would pay Colombia for the Canal Zone. But Colombia saw an opportunity. The U.S. was going to pay $40 million for the property. However, the new Panama Canal Company was bankrupt and the charter would revert to Colombia in 1904. Knowing that the United States would pay significantly for this land, Colombia decided to stall negotiations until 1904 forcing the French to forfeit. No one except Colombia was happy about this decision. In response, the representative for the French Canal Company actively instigated a revolution in Panama. The U.S. even got involved and agreed to meet Dr. Amador from the rebel faction to help with an uprising. President Roosevelt even gave a tacit approval to the rebel forces for a revolution. Two days after Dr. Amador returned to Panama City, a Declaration of Independence was issued. Roosevelt sent additional naval ships to the area, and on November 2nd, the Department of the Navy sent the following missions to the three ships in Panama. Quote, Maintain free and interrupted transit. If an interruption is threatened by armed force, occupy the line of the railroad. Prevent landing of any armed force with hostile intent, either government or insurgent, at any point within 50 miles of Panama. Government forces reported approaching the Isthmus and vessels, preventing their landing if, in your judgment, the landing would precipitate a conflict. Unquote. But that message would arrive a few hours too late. On November 3rd, Colombian gunboats carrying 500 troops arrived in Cologne. The USS Nashville was the closest ship in the area, but they had not received the message from the Department of the Navy yet. They allowed the Colombians to land. Commander Hubbard received the message two hours later, and he went to shore to fulfill his mission. The U.S. commander spoke to Colonel Torres, the Colombians' immediate commander, and denied him the use of the train in Panama. Colonel Torres did not take this order lightly, and he threatened the U.S. commander. Colombian forces surrounded Hubbard and his landing party, but nothing happened. An agreement was made between the two commanders to withdraw. Hubbard would return to his ship, and Torres would take his men out of town. This agreement wasn't ideal for Hubbard, but he was outnumbered 10 to 1, so he had little option. The following morning, Hubbard noticed that Colombian forces only headed to the border of the town. They still occupied houses at the edge of the city. Things started to heat up, so an expeditionary battalion of Marines was assembled in Philadelphia and headed for the Caribbean on the USS Dixie. They arrived in Cologne 11 days later. When they pulled into port, they immediately saw signals from shore showing the situation to be extremely critical. 
Two companies of the Marine Battalion, commanded by Major John A. Lejeune, landed and quickly restored peace. Lejeune set up a police force in Cologne that could manage the city's defense, and the Marines headed back to the ship as soon as protection was established. On November 18th, the U.S. agreed to a treaty with Panama that gave them the canal rights originally proposed to Colombia. The treaty also stipulated that the United States wouldn't get involved in Panama affairs unless interventions helped stabilize the government, protect the construction of the canal, and protect the operation of the railroad. With the city under control, there was only one ingress point where Colombian forces could enter Panama. Panamanian government forces were sent to garrison these weaknesses, and the United States sent an expeditionary force to support these two points as well. The Navy ordered the USS Wyoming and the USS Boston to take troops through the Gulf of San Miguel and up the Tuera River. A company of Marines on board the Boston were part of the expeditionary force. Captain Smedley Butler was in charge. In the meantime, Lejeune's battalion on the Dixie was used as a reserve in Cologne. An additional battalion of Marines, consisting of 11 officers and 300 enlisted, commanded by Major Louis C. Lucas, was stood up in Philadelphia and left for Guantanamo Bay on November 9th. They were later transferred to Cologne four days before Christmas. Lucas and Lejeune's battalion converted the French Canal Company's buildings into barracks. Two additional battalions consisting of 635 Marines were created in Philadelphia and left for Panama on the Dixie on December 28th. The combined Marine force was organized into a brigade of two regiments and commanded by Brigadier General Commandant George F. Elliott. The Marine Brigade took a strong interest in learning about their new area of operation. Multiple scouting parties traveled throughout the area and produced data for maps. Marines mapped every trail, and scouts documented major terrain features. The Marine Corps spent a considerable amount of resources on the reconnaissance of the canal in Panama City. By February 1904, the relationship between the United States and Colombia improved significantly, and by the middle of March, all Colombian troops waiting to invade Panama withdrew. The Colombian government announced that it wouldn't attack Panama in the future. The Marine Brigade would stay in the area until Valentine's Day 1904. Elliott sent most Marines to Guantanamo Bay to await further orders. He transferred his command of the Marine Brigade and headed back to Washington to assume his duties as Commandant of the Marine Corps. Only the 1st Battalion of the regiment remained in the Panama region. These Marines would continue to map out surrounding countries and made substantial progress deep into Panamanian territory. They also had the responsibility of acting as a stabilizing force and stopping any further revolutions. They had to stop revolutions a few times during their stay. One of them included a plot from a Panamanian army general, Huertas, to mutiny against the president of Panama. Lejeune had a battalion of Marines ready for a rapid movement into the city should the need occur. The Marines managed to calm the situation until the police force came in and took over. Lejeune's battalion was relieved towards the end of 1904 by Lieutenant Colonel Thomas A. Wood and his battalion consisting of 12 officers 
and 486 Marines. For the next decade, Marines would come and go off Panama. An average of a Marine battalion was permanently based in Panama, with an average strength of 15 officers and 400 enlisted. The U.S. Army began to take over responsibility of the Canal Zone on October 4, 1911, with the 10th Infantry arriving at Cologne. On January 21, 1914, the last battalion of Marines withdrew and headed to Veracruz, Mexico. There was a revolution happening, and a few radical acts split the country and forced it into a civil war. In February 1913, Francisco Madero, the president of Mexico and the first head of state in the world to fly in an airplane, was forcefully removed from office by General Huertas, commander of the revolutionary faction. Soon after, Madero and his vice president were assassinated, and the public pointed the blame towards Huertas. Things started to become chaotic in Mexico, and the United States felt it was a time to send in military forces to protect American lives and property. The U.S. Army sent forces to Galveston and brought in transport vessels in anticipation of a military invasion. The Navy sent multiple ships to port located on both the east and west coast of Mexico. And on February 20th, 1913, the Marine Corps set up a brigade of 72 officers and 2,097 enlisted, commanded by Colonel Lincoln Carmony. These Marines were headed towards our neighbor to the south, where they will take part in the intervention of Mexico. Amongst these Marines was the commander of the 1st Marine Brigade and the 1st Regiment on board the Hancock, Colonel John A. Lejeune. Thanks for listening. Next week, we'll head to Mexico with the Marines during the occupation of Veracruz and to Cuba, where we'll take a look at post-Spanish-American war activities. Welcome to this week's book recommendation. This week's audiobook is A World Undone, The Story of the Great War, 1914-1918, by Gerald J. Meyer. World War I is coming up on our podcast, and I'm extremely excited about it. The podcast will cover high-level causes of the war, will briefly go over European country involvement, and also touch on U.S. Army involvement in the war. But this is a podcast about Marine Corps history, and outside Marine Corps history, we won't get into too many details about World War I. If you like details and want to dig into a rabbit hole, this book is a great choice. A World Undone is an extremely detailed book that is meticulously researched. The author does a great job listing events chronologically, which makes the war a little easier to follow. This is a great read if you want to learn about World War I. Very thorough and easy to read. Visit audibletrial.com slash marinehistory for a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial. But don't feel obligated to select my recommendation. The free audiobook applies to any of the thousands of Audible choices. If you like what you're hearing, Check out historyofthemarinecorps.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each show, and look at references used for each episode. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History, and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share, and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and let us know why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening and Semper Fi.